7 o'clock. I like to start on time, so if you don't mind making your way to the auditorium for our devotional period, hope you're having a great week. Looks like maybe, uh, hopefully, we've avoided some of the bad weather this time. Listen, if you haven't signed up for Congregate, I hope that you'll do that this evening. Uh, if you'll capture uh, that information there, it, it'll be a very quick process. But if you're not using it, haven't accepted it yet, I'm just going to tell you, it's, it's an invaluable tool. Hope you'll get that and get to using it. If for no other reason than everybody's information, their pictures are on that app and it's just super useful have some announcements about events taking place. A lot of it has to do with lads to leaders. On Sunday, there will be a third grade and fifth grade puppet. They're meeting at the TAC immediately following the morning worship. And then, wow, there's going to be lunch. The song leading songs of praise are going to meet at 4 and Bible Bowl test on 3.30 Sunday. There's a new ladies class that's taking place tomorrow evening at Anita Forrest House. And it's a great subject. It's called Loving Your Husband. I am so excited about this class. And I know that any of you husbands that are sending your wives there are just expecting some amazing things. So... If, if you're interested in that, please let Anita know. She's got some books. And if you're not able to make the class, uh, she's actually got um, uh, a Google, um, Google Meets uh, that you can use and catch up on videos. So that should be a great thing. The Golden Circle is going to meet next Monday for breakfast. Leave the building over at the Annex at 830 we have several people who have been sick or are in need of our prayers that I want to share with you. These, these are some that we haven't really mentioned. Uh, Loxley Eaton, who's six years old, had a brain tumor removed. Uh, we mentioned that, but she's going to be going to St. Jude uh, after a short period of rest, probably be there for a couple of weeks. So please keep Loxley in your prayers. Uh, Denise Martin's mother fell this week and broke her back again. Uh, she is going to be going to have surgery on Friday in Tupelo. She's at home right now. Barbara Beard has been suffering with some back pain, uh, pretty serious. Allison Hogan, who is Demar and Dixie Elam's daughter, uh, she has been in the Huntsville hospital in critical condition. She has made some improvements and hopefully she's going to make a recovery, but please remember the Hogan family in your prayers. Allison Wade Perigo, who is John Roten's cousin, we've been praying for her. She was hoping for a lung transplant. Well, she got the call and I'm going to assume she's made it to Vanderbilt by now, but um, Hopefully that surgery is going to go well and our prayer is going to be answered. Uh, one prayer I'm sure was answered was that with regard to Linda Garrett. Uh, she had her procedure today. Uh, the doctors, you know, they do the pathology and all that. They checked her lymph nodes, no cancer in the lymph nodes. So that's just a, a huge relief for them and for us too, yes? So we're very, very grateful to God for those things. Okay, we're going to be singing and then I'm going to offer a short devotion. Uh, Gibson's going to lead our singing. Brother Mormon will lead our prayer following the devotion. The first song tonight will be Stand Up for Jesus, 648. Stand Up for Jesus. That's awesome. Stand up, stand up for Jesus, each soldier's
In Psalm 51 and verse 10, the scripture says, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. King David is a notable figure of the Old Testament scriptures for a lot of reasons. He was courageous. He is described as being a man after God's own heart. But he was not perfect. David was, well, he was a sinner. His sin is notable for a lot of reasons. But if I just say the words related to his sin, pretty shocking. Things like adultery, lying, murder. David was not perfect, but what we do find out is that he was faithful. This psalm, for instance, this psalm is a psalm whose words were put together for the purpose of being a vehicle for repentance. Truth is, when we sin, we ought to feel guilty. We ought to have a lot of shame about it. But we also should be running to God instead of hiding in our shame and our guilt or running away from God. In fact, if we were to run to God with our sin in repentance, perhaps we could make the same cry that David made right here. In just our most humble self, sorry for our sin, we cry out, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. The word steadfast has a lot of connotations to it. Sometimes the picture is standing up straight. But in this case, it's, it's that idea of faithfulness. Restore to me faithfulness. You may not be perfect, but you can be faithful. When we return to God, we need to remember that he is compassionate and he is merciful. I remember Jesus hanging on the cross in the face of, well, what seems to be unrepentant sin, but crying out to those who are sinning at his feet to the Father on their behalf. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. Are you a child of God who's filled with guilt and shame because of your sin? Why don't you come back to Jesus tonight? Confessing your sin, John tells us that he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If you're not a child of God tonight, then you can have your sins washed away by the blood of Jesus in obedience to the gospel. You most likely already believe that Jesus is the Son of God. Maybe it's just the hang-up with the sin you're dealing with. Won't you repent of that and turn away from it? Won't you confess your faith in Jesus and tonight be buried in water to have those sins washed away? You'll rise up in newness of life. If there's anybody who needs to respond tonight, not perfect, but you can be faithful. Why don't you come while we stand and sing together? When we walk with the
Let us pray together. Uh, Father in heaven, we give thee our thanks for the blessings of this another day of life. We're thankful, Father, for letting us live in the land where we're assembling here in this assembly tonight. Open up pages of thy word and study from it, Father. We pray, Father, as we grow in spirit, we'll also grow in number. We're thankful, Father, for our nation, and we pray for our leaders. We pray for those that have lost loved ones, Father. We ask thy blessing be upon our teachers tonight that go to the classes. We pray that much good will come from our assembly here tonight. Ask thee, Father, that will forgive us and sin against us as we repent and turn from those things, Father. He were dressed in Christ's name. Amen. As the teachers make their way to class, we'll be singing, God is so good. Let's sing. Well, good evening once more. Uh, we'll go ahead here in a moment and resume our ongoing study of the book of Romans. We will be in chapter 3 uh, this evening. I appreciate Doug filling in for me last Wednesday in my absence, but I look forward to being back here with you for the uh, next four or five weeks or so, so we can get a little further into our study here so but it's wonderful to see all of you here again and I'm always encouraged to see individuals who still have a concern for matters such as this so again Romans chapter 3 and before we uh, begin our study of that here uh, this evening uh, JT could I call on you to lead us in a brief prayer Our Heavenly Father, we're so thankful unto you for this beautiful day that's ours to enjoy, for this opportunity to gather together tonight to study your word. We pray, Father, that you would be with Adam as he directs his study, give him a good recollection of things he prepared. Help us as listeners to listen and learn and apply the things we learned in our life that we might be more pleasing to you in the future than we have in the past. We are again mindful of those that are sick, having difficulties in life, we're thankful for those that are doing better, and we ask your continued care for those that are going through difficult times, especially be with those that have lost loved ones. These things we ask in Christ's name. Amen. All right. Thank you. So if you'll recall from our study of the Wednesday before last, when we went through uh, chapter 2, we looked at the things there that Paul uh, stated concerning the Jews, his fellow Israelites, especially beginning in verse 17 and going through the rest of the chapter. 
And he ends that, that particular section in verse, uh, verses 28 and 29 by defining who is a Jew. And what Paul is beginning to argue, and we're going to see a little bit more of this in chapter 3, and then really when we get into chapter 4, is that it is about faith rather than flesh. Rather than lineage, who we're related to. And he's going to begin building on that argument. So when we come here to verse, or excuse me, chapter 3, and we look here in our first section at verses 1 through 8, uh, we'll notice some of these things. So as Paul ends the previous section, he begins this section uh, by asking this question, what advantage then has the Jew or what is the profit of circumcision? Well, he's going to go on and answer his own question. Uh, notice he says, because to them, that would be the Jews, were committed the oracles of God. Keep in mind, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, through the sons of Jacob, the nation, the physical nation of Israel came. And ultimately, it was through the line of Judah, Hebrews 7 and verse 14, that Jesus came into the world. But also, it was to them that the law was given. It was given to them through Moses on Mount Sinai, the books of Exodus and Leviticus, Deuteronomy, covers all of that very thoroughly. But not only was that law spoken, that law was also written. And it was given specifically to Israel. So building off of that, he says, For what if some did not believe? Will their unbelief make the faithfulness of God without effect? Well, again, he's asking a rhetorical question in the form of a hypothetical. Well, what if? Well, he's going to answer that. And the short answer to that is no. Unfaithfulness or rebellion to God on our part in no way makes what he has revealed or what he has promised of no effect. That does not change anything. He goes on, certainly not. Indeed, let God be true, but every man a liar as it is written. The passage he quotes there is Psalm 51 and verse 4. So you can go back there and see that for additional context. But let's think about that briefly. So what is he saying? He's saying that God is true, that God is faithful. He's going to build on that. But if our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say? Is God unjust who inflicts wrath? I speak as a man. Certainly not, verse 6, for then how will God judge the world? So we look at verse 5. If our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say? Is God unjust who inflicts wrath? Well, again, the short answer is no. God has revealed he revealed the law to Moses and to the Israelites. And under the new covenant, the law of Christ has been revealed to us. We know what's expected. We know what we are and are not to do. And we can know that God is just and fair. He will punish unrighteousness, wickedness, and disobedience. And notice that parenthetical statement there. He says, I speak as a man. Now let's be clear about that. When he says that, when he says, I speak as a man, he's not suggesting that he's making up these doctrines as he writes this. This isn't some arbitrary 
utterance. But what he is saying is that he is speaking to them in anticipation of some of the objections that they might raise to what he is saying. Verse 7, for if the truth of God has increased through my lie to his glory, why am I also still judged as a sinner? And why not say, let us do evil that good may come? As we are slenderously reported, and as some affirm that we say, their condemnation is just. So we can see from context here in his statement, uh, in verse 8 is that some, probably some of Paul's critics, some who were persecuting him in various ways, were going around and reporting that, he, that Paul was teaching this doctrine that one can do evil so that good may come. He's not saying that, and I think we all realize that when we uh, look at it here. But he is addressing that. But when he does say that, let us do evil that good may come, he's reasoning and he's arguing the way that some perhaps would. And we need to understand too that while yes, sometimes good things may come from something horrendous, that does not give any of us license to go out and commit evil deeds. Notice he says their condemnation is just, probably referring to those who were falsely accusing him of teaching something that he was not teaching. All right, uh, that is verses 1 through 8. Uh, do we have any questions or comments on any of that? All right, well, we'll move on a little bit a little bit further here. So we come now to verses 9 through 20. So remember chapter 1, he talked about the wrath of God being revealed from heaven against all unrighteousness, probably speaking of the Gentile world in ancient times. Chapter 2, we see him speaking of the Jews primarily. So what is he leading up to? Well, we'll see it here. What then are we, when he says we, he's probably referring to the Jews better than they, the Gentiles? Not at all, for we have previously charged both Jews and Greeks that they are all under sin. Chapter 1, he says that they are without excuse. Chapter 2, he shows some of the basic teachings and principles of the law of Moses to establish these things. And then when you go to chapter 7, he is going to argue and show that the law, that is the law of Moses, was a teacher. As he says in that section, that if it were not for the law, I would not know what sin is. All right, so here to establish this, he is going to state, he starts as it is written, and this is going to come not necessarily from one specific passage, but it comes from various passages scattered out through the Psalms uh, and Isaiah, and I'll give those to you quickly for reference, and if you miss any of that, please see me afterward, and I'll be happy to uh, share those with you again, uh, but that comes from Psalms 14, verses 1 through 3, uh, 53, verses 1 through 6, Psalm 5, and verse 9, 140, and verse 3, Isaiah 59, verses 7 and 8, and Psalm 36 and verse 1. And again, I know I stated that a little bit out of order, but as they're arranged in our English translations, that's the order uh, in which these statements would appear. Uh, but again, see me afterward if you 
miss any of that, and I will be happy uh, to share it with you again. Uh, but again, he quotes the, this, and you look at the things that he says. Um, there is none righteous, no, not one, none who understands, none who seeks after God. Well, what have they done? They become unprofitable. There is none who does good, no, not one. They're so showing the uh, sinful state of man. Now, this is another section uh, that some will come to in the various teachings and affirmations of uh, false doctrine. Uh, for, uh, for example, the Calvinist will uh, sometimes come here and they'll use this to uh, teach their doctrine, for example, of uh, total depravity. And they'll say, well, see, Romans 3, Paul says, God says that there is none that do good, no, not one. But what Paul is doing here is he is showing again from the scriptures that both Jew and Greek or Gentile, those terms are synonymous, that they both alike are in a state of sin. And he's using the scriptures to establish that. And there's a, kind of a little sidebar here. That should be a good lesson uh, for us. Reason with people from the scriptures. And I know there are several in here that do that and do it very well. And that's a practice that we should uh, continue to do. So we come down to verse 19. He says, now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, 20, therefore by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight for by the law is the knowledge of sin. Which law is he talking about? Law of Moses? All right. Uh, primarily, he, he is speaking of that because that is the written law. Uh, he is speaking to the Jews here. Uh, so there is that law. And then there was the patriarchal law as well, uh, probably referenced previously in chapter uh, 1 and 2. Because remember, chapter 1, he says that they are without excuse. So there has always been a moral standard. But the greatest... Uh, point here, and this is one that if we get nothing else from this, let's understand this. When he says in verse 20 that no flesh will be justified in his sight, referring back to that by the deeds of the law, that is those works, those things, those good things that some may do to boast or to argue that they were saved because they're right before God. Uh, again, you go back to Cornelius, Acts chapter 10. Uh, you know, from the way Cornelius is described there, there's nobody that would say that Cornelius was a bad or wicked man. And he could have very easily argued that because of the good things that he was doing for his family, his friends, his neighbors, his community, that he didn't need to do anything else, but he didn't do that. He received and adhered to the message of the gospel. And so Paul is transitioning here from showing that one is not saved by works, and then he's going to transition to faith. Uh, but keep that in mind in verse 19, for the law, there, for the, by the law is the knowledge of sin. So again, being without excuse. Uh, do we have any questions, observations on verses 9 through 20? All right, well, we'll go ahead and uh, move a little further here. Uh, verses 21 through 31. Uh, here he is going to speak of righteousness and faith. 
All right, so let's see what is revealed concerning this. The righteous, but now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. The law of Moses, the prophets of the Old Testament. And you see how frequently in the New Testament writings, especially in Paul's writings in Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, for example, how frequently those Old Testament writings are referred to. Well, why is that? Well, for two reasons. One, because that was what had been written and revealed up until that time. Secondly, it was for the purpose of establishing proof that this was the fulfillment of those things. So when Paul says uh, that this was being witnessed by the law and the prophets, what he's saying is this is the fulfillment of what is written in the law and the prophets, law of Moses and the prophetic writings. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. Now again, let's be clear about something. Paul is not teaching here nor anywhere else in the book of Romans that there is no law. Some erroneously teach that doctrine. But again, 2 Peter 3, 15 and 16, what do they do? They twist the scriptures to their own destruction. So we need to understand these things properly in their context. Now notice what he also says here in 22, not only through faith in Jesus Christ, but notice to all and on all who believe. That's very important to understand. This, as with all writings of the New Testament, were written to Christians for Christians. So what Paul is saying is that all of these things are revealed, they are evident, and this is extended to those who believe. Believe there that word being used to stand for the entirety of those who obey the gospel message. Again, he says, for there is no difference, no difference in what? Between the Jew and the Gentile in this sense of what? For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Because you had the Jews who erroneously believed that they were saved and in a right standing because one of their fleshly lineage being descended from Abraham and secondly, because of their adherence in keeping the law of Moses. And we see that refuted several times in the book of Romans and elsewhere. And then, of course, again, I would strongly encourage, if you have not done so, to do a parallel study between Romans and the book of Hebrews. And you will see... Again, how well all of these teachings harmonize. For all have sinned, that is, Jew and Gentile, and fall short of the glory of God. Well, what's the remedy to that? Being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. First, let us consider sin is the problem that is identified. Sin is defined and explained, 1 John chapter 3 and verse 4, as transgression of the law. So let's or at least briefly define some of the other terms that Paul is using here. So he says, verse 24, being justified, justified or justification, that is the idea of a pardoning or being made whole. He goes on to uh, use the term redemption, and we see that a lot in the scripture, Old and New Testament alike. 
That is the deliverance from bondage by purchase. In this case, in the context of which Paul is speaking, that bondage is sin. The redemption or the purchasing back came at a price. That price is the blood of Jesus. He's going to go on in 25 saying, Whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood. Now that term, their propitiation, that is not a word that we use in everyday conversation. Have any of you used or had someone use that word today in any communications that you've had? I'm going to dare say probably not. If they have, congratulations. <laughs> but kidding aside, this word, it only appears three other times in the entirety of the New Testament. It is not, it was not a common word in the Greek and it is not a common word in the English. Yes, that's uh, one of the passages I was going to reference. Thank you, Luther. Uh, so if anybody didn't hear that, uh, two of the passages in which you find this word is in the book of 1 John, uh, chapter 2 and verse 2, and chapter 4 and verse 10. The other passage is Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 17. So coupled here with Romans uh, 3.25... This word only appears four times in the entirety of the New Testament. So now that we've used the word, let's try to figure out what it means. So in what context is he using this word? It meant to cover you over. That's the, that's the basic idea. Uh, you're, you're on the right track. Uh, it, broadly speaking, that definition or propitiation has to do with uh, sacrifice. Uh, so in that context of what you said, that, that would be correct. Uh, because well, what, what is that covering over in this context? It's covering over our sins. I'm sorry? Atoning sacrifice, well said. Uh, or atonement through sacrifice, either way works. Uh, so, now that we've established the problem, we see Paul beginning to give the solution. For what purpose did God send forth his son as a propitiation by his blood through faith? Why? To demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance God had passed over the sins that were previously committed. Now there's some challenge to that. Exactly what does Paul mean when he says that God had passed over the sins that were previously committed? Well, again, context, it may very well be referring back to the law of Moses. You, again, parallel to the book of Hebrews, what does the penman say in chapter 10? That the blood of bulls and goats could not do what? Take away sin. He go, he'll go on in there to argue that the Levitical priesthood, that those priests too were beset by sin. And so that's probably what uh, he's referring to here in that, but I'll uh, encourage you to study it, draw uh, the proper conclusions on that. But he goes on to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So he's established the problem of sin and now he's telling us what we can do about it. Notice the key here, blood and faith. Faith 
when one proclaims faith of necessity, action and obedience must follow. And that's what, I don't want to get too far ahead, but that's what we're going to see uh, next Wednesday, God willing, when we get into chapter 4, when he gives the example of Abraham. And we'll have a whole lot more uh, to say about that at that time. But I want you to go ahead and be thinking uh, there about that. So he's going to go on. He asks, where is boasting then? It is excluded. There's no reason to boast. To boast in what? Your own works. Man cannot save himself. That was the whole purpose in the coming of Jesus. By what law of works? No, but by the law of faith. So this law of faith, what is he referring to? He's referring to the new covenant under Christ. Nowhere does he teach that this is by faith only, as some will affirm. And we'll, again, get into a little bit more of that next week in chapter 4 when we draw some parallels to James chapter 2. Uh, we'll spend a little time there as well, most likely. Therefore, we conclude that a man is justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law. See how simple that is? Faith, the faith being in Christ, he says, apart from the deeds or the works of the law, most likely referring to the law of Moses, that is, that was null and void and of no effect. That wasn't going to save anyone but faith in Christ does. Faith, again, synonymously, or synonymous, rather, with obedience. Because for there to be true faith, there must be obedience. Again, Hebrews chapter 11. You go there and you read of every great figure of the Old Testament that is referenced in that section... And the one thing that you will see in common, regardless of who it was, is that they did something. They demonstrated their faith by acting upon what God revealed to them. Or, 29, is he the God of the Jews only? Well, no. Is he not also the God of the Gentiles? Yes, of the Gentiles also. That is, Jew and Gentile or Greek alike. We have one God, one Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. All are saved in the same manner. Since there is one God who will justify the circumcised, synonymous with Jew, by faith, and the uncircumcised, that is Gentile, through faith, do we then make void the law through faith? Certainly not. On the contrary, we establish the law. In the Sermon on the Mount... One of the things that Jesus taught was that he had come to what? To fulfill the law. That again being the law of Moses. In what sense did Jesus fulfill the law? He brought it to an end. Colossians 2 and verse 14. That is an excellent passage uh, there to go and to demonstrate that because we will from time to time encounter those who uh, will still affirm that there are at least certain parts of the law of Moses, the old covenant, that we are obligated uh, to keep. And of course, they 
I think they miss Paul's statements that if you do one part of the law, you're debtor to do the whole law. I've never seen them offer an animal sacrifice. I've never seen them travel to Jerusalem to observe the feast days, etc. So they can't pick and choose uh, which it's going to be. All right. Uh, do we have any, any additional questions, comments on any of that? I think we may have just a little bit of time left here, so I'd be happy to have some discussion generated if anybody uh, has anything pertaining to what we just read here. Okay. Well, I know we're, we're concluding perhaps a little bit early. I don't see or hear any uh, children convening yet in the uh, foyer, but uh, that is chapter 3. And again, if you missed any of those references that I, I gave a little while ago, uh, feel free to ask me about that and I will share those with you gladly. Uh, but go ahead for uh, next week and go ahead and be reading uh, chapter 4 and we'll see what is revealed there concerning the example of Abraham. But as always, I appreciate your uh, kind attention and the opportunity afforded.